Welcome. This is Philippe Albuquerque. I am the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Neurointerventional Surgery, and I'm thrilled today to welcome two of my friends and co-editors, Kyle Fargin and Mike Levitt, who will discuss today on our podcast uh, the topic of idiopathic intracranial hypertension. Uh, I know it's a subject that, at least for the three of us, is near and dear to our hearts as we've all uh, worked clinically and in research uh, on this topic for many years. Um, specifically, we'll discuss today uh, Kyle's commentary, which was published in the February issue of the Journal of Neurointerventional Surgery, entitled Idiopathic Intracranial Hypertension is Not Idiopathic, a Proposal for a New Nomenclature and Patient Classification. And we'll discuss as well Mike Levitt's commentary based on Dr. Fargin's commentary. Uh, and Mike's commentary was published in the April issue of the JNIS and is entitled Another Version of the Truth. At the outset, guys, before I welcome you, I will say that this podcast is supported by Rapid Medical, the maker of the Komenichi Aneurysm Embolization Assist Device. The Komenichi is the only temporary coiling assist device that does not require paracostal occlusion during coil procedures or the need for long-term antiplatelet medication for permanent stenting. The Komenichi is available in Europe and was recently cleared for marketing by the FDA. Please see their website, www.rapidmedical.com for more details. Mike and Kyle, welcome. And I know these are trying times for all of us, um, especially Mike, you're kind of in the epicenter of things with the COVID virus. Um, so Kyle, can you explain why you feel the term IIH no longer adequately defines this disease spectrum and how this prompted you to consider reclassifying this condition? Yeah, so thanks for um, letting me participate in this podcast and for giving me a platform to talk about this article. I think um, there's uh, several important reasons that we need to revisit and rethink how we define and understand IIH. I think from a personal standpoint, um, I would see patients in clinic and describe that they have this condition called IIH. When I'm talking to patients and families, I kept telling them that, well, idiopathic intracranial hypertension stands for high pressure in the head for unknown reasons. But then I would tell them, well, in fact, we, we kind of know why it happens. So the name isn't really helpful anymore. And that's because we now understand that patients with IH have both high intracranial pressures as well as high venous sinus pressures. And we know this because we're routinely measuring venous pressures during angiogram procedures to evaluate for candidacy for stenting. And so taking a step back, um, the term idiopathic by definition means a disease or a condition which arises spontaneously or um, for which the cause is unknown. And uh, the International Nomenclature of Diseases, who kind of sets the criteria for selecting proper names for diseases, states that any name should meet five basic criteria or five main standards. And the first is that the name is specific. The second, that it's unambiguous. The third, that it's self-descriptive. Fourth, that it's simple. And fifth, that it's based on cause. And uh, knowing what we know about the root cause of IH now, it seems kind of inappropriate to keep using an antiquated term. And I think, you know, as medical knowledge increases in the future, it's only natural and expected that more and more diseases will lose the title of idiopathic and be replaced by more accurate or more appropriate names. 
So I think first and foremost, the term IH, I feel, is no longer helpful. Secondly, um, the current diagnostic criteria for IH really doesn't differentiate or classify patients with the disease. And, and that's, we, we know it's true because not all IH patients are the same. Um, some have the disease due to obesity and improve after you know, bariatric surgery. Some have venous sinus stenosis, some do not. And uh, some patients have a clinical syndrome very similar to IH after having venous sinus thrombosis. So clearly all these patients are very different, yet the current diagnostic criteria really does not differentiate between any of these factors. And I think this has really important ramifications for how we select patients for treatments, the research that we do, uh, even designing clinical trials for new stent technologies. Um, it only makes sense that we're designing a system that attempts to differentiate patients based on the different causes and allows for individualization of the treatments. So those two are important. And one last thing, just about 15 to 20% of the patients I take care of have opening pressures on final tap that are less than 25 centimeters of water. And these patients frequently have disabling headaches and feel much better after draining CSF. And, and these patients are basically completely left out of the old criteria. Sure. Uh, Kyle, before we get into the basics of your classification system, I wanted to open it up to Mike. Uh, Mike, I know you've written a lot about venous pressure gradients in both IIH and non-IIH patients. Reading Kyle's paper, writing your commentary, do you really feel that there is a classification scheme that can encompass this diverse patient population? Kyle touched on some of the uh, uh, etiologic factors of this disease, which are wide-ranging. Can we bring it all together in one net, as Kyle has attempted to do? Yeah, thanks. I think we get closer here. Um, I don't think any classification is perfect, but certainly this disease is in a uh, kind of a long-standing need for updating. Uh, and I think that the real change started even back in the early 2000s when um, some groups started to describing angioplasty and then subsequently stenting for the venous stenosis that we know is a contributor to some patients with this disease. And really, that's when it changed from idiopathic, as Kyle said, because we, we know what's going on in, in a good number of these patients. I do think that we need a better understanding of the relationship between CSF production, venous absorption, and brain compliance. And I think this gets us closer. I don't think it answers all the questions yet, of course. Um, but I think that the idea of incorporating different um, patient characteristics, including uh, systemic disease, focal venous stenosis, previous thrombosis, those things, I think that's really important in trying to better stratify patients for um, the type of treatment that might be beneficial and to codify the use of certain techniques like stenting in some cases and then avoiding those techniques in others when we know that it may not make a difference. So I think that's the, the main benefit from this, aside from just an excellent way of organizing the thinking around the pathophysiology of this disease. And I think that any classification system for this type of disease um, really needs to consider, what, when we consider the classification system, we need to consider things like ophthalmic symptoms, which are obviously an important aspect of choosing whether to intervene and be more aggressive in patient treatment as well. 
one of the real objective findings, obviously, in this patient population. Um, so, Kyle, let's get into your classification scheme. Can you talk a little bit about the clinical research that it was based upon? You mentioned uh, at the uh, outset in your commentary that your clinical series of more than 100 IIH patients. So, was this the basis of your classification scheme? If not, how did you put this together? Yeah, so the foundation of the STEAM does derive from that um, series, which we published in JNIS um, in the beginning of 2019. And basically, it was a, over 100 patients, consecutive IH patients that underwent venous manometry. And we basically analyzed the venous pressures in that patient population. And importantly, these patients were not chosen for angiography based on non-invasive imaging like CTV or MRV, but this kind of represented an all-comers to my clinic that had medically refractory symptoms. And so when we look at the pressures and the gradients from that sample, there's a couple, I think, really important points that we find. And, and the first point is that um, superior sagittal sinus pressures correlate to opening pressure on a spinal tap. So not perfectly, but they correlate strongly. And so the higher the opening pressure, the higher these pressures are in the superior sagittal sinus. Secondly, central venous pressure correlates to BMI, and again, not perfectly, but strongly, so that the higher the BMI, the higher the CVP. Uh, third, superior sagittal sinus pressures are always higher than central venous pressure, and in patients that don't have a pathological stenosis with a gradient, um, it's usually about four or five millimeters of mercury higher in the superior sagittal sinus than the central venous pressure. And, and so because of this relationship, uh, CVP seems to be the foundation through which the superior sagittal sinus pressures arise. Um, another important point is that uh, uh, over 50% of the patients had venous sinus stenosis, and that uh, contributed to even higher or further elevations in superior sagittal sinus pressures. And, um, and then also importantly, the higher the opening pressure on a spinal tap, the more likely we are to find a stenable stenosis. And so these realizations kind of allowed us to look at the patients and develop sort of a scheme that allows us to identify individual drivers of a patient's high intracranial venous pressures. And uh, essentially, there's four groups that I created. Uh, the first one, type 1 patients, are essentially those that have venous sinus or cervical venous stenosis as the sole driver of elevated intracranial venous pressures. So these patients actually have normal or near normal central venous pressures, and the stenosis is the main driver. Therefore, they are sort of ideal stent candidates because theoretically you resolve the venous outflow obstruction, and that would potentially normalize venous sinus pressures, and therefore intracranial pressures. The second group of patients, the type 2, are those that have elevations in central venous pressure that are the sole driver of the elevated pressures, meaning that um, there is no venous sinus stenosis, so that you can't stent them, uh, and oftentimes these patients are obese. And so these patients are the type that would probably most benefit from weight loss CSF shunting or optic nerve sheath fenestration, but really endovascular techniques don't play a role at all. Then the type 3 patient is a mixed picture, and this probably is the most common group. And this means that um, many of these patients are obese, 
they have higher than normal central venous pressures that are driving higher pressures in the head, but then they have concomitant venous sinus stenosis that's increasing those pressures even further. And so stenting may lower pressures by correcting the pressure elevation due to the venous sinus narrowing, but even in doing so, oftentimes elevated intracranial pressures remain because the high central venous pressure continues to drive higher than normal pressures in the head. Uh, and then type 4 patients are sort of a strange collection of patients that have either documented venous sinus thrombosis in the past or in which we are highly suspicious based on imaging or historical data. And in these patients, it's sort of a, a weird collection because you may have a completely absent sinus, one of the pathways is missing, or stenosed after it recanalized with uh, anticoagulation. You may find dural arteriovenous fistulae. Uh, and so treatment for these patients is obviously highly specific based on their individual factors. Uh, and then the last group was uh, a group which I called the chronic intracranial venous hypertension spectrum disorder, which really is designed to recognize patients with an opening pressure less than 25 but that have significant symptomatic improvement following a, a spinal tap. And um, these patients are not well-defined in the published literature. And, um, you know, these are unlikely to be candidates for stents because their opening pressure is low, but, um, but oftentimes symptoms are severe enough that it, it warrants something like a, a shunt. Kyle, this classification scheme really does, I think, get to the crux of the issue, which is that th these patients are, are from such a wide spectrum. And I want to get back to discussing the type 3 category in a minute here. But uh, Mike, what, I, what I'd like to discuss now is the whole issue of venous sinus stenosis and what we see on non-invasive imaging, the MRV and the CTV studies that we get before we treat these patients. And how important is that in relation to the venous pressure gradient? I don't know what you guys are using in terms of your standard as to what you see on non-invasive imaging and what your uh, a degree of pressure gradient is that you're basing your treatment upon. Mike, can you discuss uh, the range of venous pressure gradients and their physiologic relation to BMI and, and how you use uh, non-invasive imaging to bolster your um, clinical decision-making? Sure. Uh, the short answer is I, I don't really use non-invasive imaging for very much in this disease. The reason is because this is not an arterial stenotic disease. And I think people really need to get away from this idea of a linear relationship between the geometry of the stenosed segment and the severity of the disease. I think, you know, in the carotid stenting or carotid endarterectomy literature is a very clear delineation between the degree of stenosis in most cases predicting the severity of the disease process. And here it's not seen. There's actually a nice paper in JNIS um, about the relationship between venous sinus uh, gradients and the degree of anatomic stenosis. And it turns out you don't need a lot of stenosis to get a gradient. Um, and the reason is probably because it has a lot more to do with venous pathways and collaterals than it does with just the venous sinus outflow itself. And what we see, I think, clinically, anybody who does a, a reasonable number of these is there are plenty of patients who have reasonably normal-looking sinuses, uh, especially on non-invasive imaging, that have a terrible um, pathological pressure gradient. 
And also the reverse is true. We'll see patients with fairly narrow sinuses who have normal pressures. And I think in general, to answer your question, Philippe, the, the typically what I use non-invasive imaging for, honestly, is to rule out any anatomic cause that might be related, such as a dural AV fistula or some mass lesion in the brain, of course. And then uh, more or less the only other thing I use non-invasive imaging for is to see whether or not one side of the venous sinus system is atretic, in which case I won't uh, try to to catheterize it to measure pressures because I know it's not there. Or I might study the torcular architecture to see whether or not I can measure both the right and left uh, sinus systems from one jugular bulb catheterization or whether I'm going to need to move over from the right to the left uh, based on the torcular angle. But otherwise, I don't think there's much of a role in non-invasive imaging. And we know that something like 90-something percent of patients with IIH defined by Dandy criteria have some venous sinus abnormality, but uh, a much smaller percentage of them will have uh, like the type one picture or a physiological venous sinus stenosis from uh, Kyle's classification. And on the other hand, about 20 to 25% of normal patients, asymptomatic patients will have some venous sinus vascular uh, variant. And so it's pretty hard to hang your hat on a uh, just a picture of a venous narrowing on MRV or CTV to uh, change your diagnosis. Sure. And it can tip us off to some sort of uh, anatomic abnormality, as, as you mentioned, a tumor or, or some sort of abnormal configuration of the sinus system that could help you in terms of planning your stenting procedure. But how, how about the gradient, Mike? What are you using as, as your cutoff gradient? And um, how does that differ from within these different patient subpopulations? Yeah, so uh, if I had a more scientific way of doing so, I would certainly have um, uh, spread the word by now. Um, the typical gradient that most people use is eight. That is an empiric number that was more or less, I don't want to say made up, but basically made up. Um, I should say a couple things about testing, uh, as I think Kyle has done a really nice job of describing in multiple papers. Really, testing needs to be done with the most minimal amount of sedation as possible because uh, Kyle's group and others have shown that uh, any kind of anesthetic, even contrast sedation, can change the uh, pressure gradient in, in unpredictable ways. And so I think most people, we may not agree on everything, but most people agree that uh, pressure gradients should be sampled with the patient awake under as minimal sedation as possible. Um, I use a larger bore microcatheter for my measurements. Um, Ali Mitha and the um, Calgary group showed that an 027 microcatheter was probably a little bit more uh, accurate in uh, estimating venous pressures. And I use a cutoff of eight um, because that's actually, Philippe, how you taught me um, when I was your fellow. Um, but I also ensure that the global uh, venous pressures are abnormal. So again, I don't, I don't have as, as cogent a uh, classification as what Kyle put down, and he's very thoughtful about this. But in general, sort of the type, I think it's the type 2 patient that uh, has global pressures with no gradient. There's also sort of the uh, patient that I think he describes as the, the non um, Spectrum patients, it's a little bit different. Um, I hesitate to call patients on a pathological pressure gradient if their overall pressures are within normal limits. So uh, if a patient's got a gradient of 16, but the pressures fall from 18 to 2, I'm pretty reticent to consider those patients for stenting, even though there is a, quote, gradient of 
of more than than eight, um, with normal pressures on either side, it's it's harder for me to um, consider those patients as having a pathological stenosis. Sure. Yeah, that's a, that is a tough group. And speaking of the tough groups, Kyle, let's discuss in just a little bit more detail that type three category because I think that's that's where a lot of these patients are falling into. That um, you know they're they're obese. They may have some concomitant venous sinus stenosis. How are you treating these, Kyle? And and what kind of recommendations are you giving them? As I said before, I do think this makes up a substantial portion of the the IH population, and um, and so I obviously I'm a neurosurgeon, so I do both endovascular procedures as well as shunting procedures, and um, my usual management of a this type of patient is obviously we would recommend an angiogram and a venogram to evaluate the anatomy and evaluate candidacy for stenting, and then and then we determine that they have high central venous pressures oftentimes in the 15 to 18 to 20 range. But then they also have associated venous sinus stenosis with, with a pathological pressure gradient. And so my usual recommendations for these patients, uh, assuming that their symptoms are refractory to medical treatment or they have a progressive visual decline, is to stent first. And so um, I oftentimes will, will tell these patients that it's a good chance that uh, after stenting, it will reduce their intracranial pressure and, and uh, they may have um, significant symptomatic improvement for the first three to six months or so. Uh, but it's not uncommon that these patients actually come back later with recurrence of symptoms, oftentimes not as severe as before. And frequently, um, the visual symptoms of the papilledema has improved but they frequently will come back, and at that point, my usual strategy is to is to reassess with the spinal tap to actually objectively document how we have changed the intracranial pressure from pre-stenting, and if that pressure remains significantly elevated and they have ongoing severe symptoms, then we'll talk about whether they would want a shunt procedure. Some of these patients are actually potentially candidates for additional angiography to see if there's potential for other areas where we could stent. Yeah. When do you do that? Which are the patients that you're going to recommend a, an additional venogram with checking pressures again versus those that uh, you're going to proceed with shunting? Yeah, I think it's hard to know. And um, what I would say is the previous study that I referenced with the 100 and some patients, we looked at opening pressure and the relationship to finding a pathological pressure gradient. What I mean by pathological is eight millimeters of mercury or greater. And if pressures on the spinal tap were less than 25, there's actually a really low likelihood we were going to find a stenable stenosis that, that met that eight millimeter of mercury gradient. Uh, if the pressures are greater than 35, there's about a 75% chance or higher that the patient, that we would find a, um, a stenable gradient. So I sort of, I use that uh, to help make decisions. Obviously, I don't want to subject patients to unnecessary uh, venogram procedures. Uh, at the same time, I don't want to, you know, rule somebody out of a potential additional endovascular procedure uh, that could improve their symptoms um, and just jump directly to a shunt. And we know there are problems with shunts, high revision rate. And so I try to avoid shunning unless really necessary. 
So I, I kind of use that data to, to help make decisions. If the, if the opening pressure on the spinal tap after they've been stented is less than 25, I think it's probably unlikely that we're going to find something, especially if I already know what their central venous pressure was in the last venogram. I can sort of just by looking at that data determine whether there is any chance that there would be further outflow obstruction causing the opening pressure to be what it is. Uh, and so I don't think there's, there's good data on how to make that decision. I try to use what we've done in the past to guide us, but, but I still think it's kind of up in the air. And Kyle just brings up a really important point that I think is worth emphasizing um, that others uh, have found, including Philippe, yours and my publication from a few years ago, that you just don't see venous sinus stenosis that has a stentable gradient in patients with a normal intracranial pressure on spinal tap. And I think that's that's really important um, because we know there are some places where uh, stenting is uh, much more common and the indications may be a little bit soft. And I think that it's important to stress that it's really not, for me, I don't pursue venography on a patient, whether treated or not um, for pseudotumor previously, for IH previously. I don't pursue venography on patients without um, an opening pressure that's abnormal and elevated, uh, at least uh, relatively recently, because there's just not evidence that uh, normal ICP is going to yield a pathological pressure gradient. I think that's a really important point. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with you. Venograms for me are essentially an exercise in ruling out patients for this procedure. And it seems like, um, you know, we're ruling out, you know, eight out of 10 patients or nine out of 10. It's the minority of patients that, that actually were stenting. Um, so I want to conclude this discussion, guys, with just a, a bit of a, um, a quick discussion, Mike, uh, about the future of uh, treatment of venous sinus stenosis. And, and this particular disease profile. Uh, with full disclosure, Mike and I obviously have worked uh, long and hard on getting a randomized trial going. We're close to, to doing that, the open up trial. So uh, I know you have some opinions about that and, and about the future. And Mike, I want to give you an opportunity to talk about that. Well, yeah, excited to finally see um, a, a trial that puts a head-to-head -head randomization of shunting or stenting on patients who would qualify for stenting to determine whether stenting is not inferior to shunting on primary visual outcomes. Uh, that's the open-up trial, and I'm excited to start that, which is centered at the Barrow Neurological Institute, but uh, over five institutions in the United States. So we'll see how that probably confirms what we all already feel is uh, most likely, but got to do it in the right way. As far as the future, I think there's a variety of um, surgical, uh, diagnostic, and, and medical uh, treatments that I'm excited about. Um, from a diagnostic side, I think that um, there's two aspects of advanced MRI imaging that I'm uh, hopeful will improve the screening for this disease. First is the use of uh, phase contrast MRV um, to look at flow rates in the venous sinuses. And uh, we're doing a little bit of pilot work here at the University of Washington. And my, my hope is that by relating phase contrast uh, venography flow measurements to invasive um, venographic uh, manometry that we all do in the angio suite, we may get closer to a non-invasive method of screening patients for uh, pathological flow aberrations in the venous sinuses that could uh, tip us towards a non-invasive method of uh, better classifying patients for both diagnosis and also for following treatment course. 
I also think there's a role for MR elastography in determining brain compliance, which is sort of an understudied aspect of this disease. We know a decent amount about CSF production and CSF diversion, and we know a decent amount about CSF absorption, but the compliance issue is hard to measure. And I think MR elastography may be a tool that we'll see more of in the clinic. As far as um, surgical treatment, uh, I'm excited for our trial. I'm excited for some more specific devices like the river stent which is a longer, specially designed stent for venous sinuses that has larger cells in different areas of pressure and strength um, that's being, I believe is out of Cornell, that's being designed that may give us a better tool for treatment. You're referring to some of the work out of Pierre Gobain's lab in uh, Cornell. Exactly. Um, so I'm excited to see how that works because right now we're repurposing carotid stents or peripheral venous stents. And, and obviously we're using tools that were really not designed for this treatment um, because there is nothing that's designed for stent treatments in this location. And I'm, I'm excited to see some, some better designed kit. Um, there's also some stuff that's a little more out there like the Cerevasc e-shunt system, which is essentially an endovascular arachnoid granulation that directly uh, makes a new conduit between the venous sinuses and the CSF space. I think it's a really interesting idea. Uh, I hope it's so crazy it just might work. Um, so I'm, I'm looking at that as something that may be an interesting outcome in the future. And then from a medical standpoint, you know, there's this whole area of headache management as neurosurgeons and neurointerventionalists don't see that much, but in the IIHTT trial, 37% of patients had an overuse medication headache at baseline. There's a lot of secondary headache disorder in this uh, patient population. And there's some brand new oral agents like calcitonin gene-related peptide inhibitors um, that are effective in migraines that probably have a role in the chronic headache aspect of this disease. So there's some new medical treatments that may um, expand our armamentarium beyond just uh, surgical endovascular techniques. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, just wrapping this up, I want to thank both of you for your contributions to this field and, and for attempting to simplify what, Mike, you just described as a very heterogeneous patient population and a very complex disease. Kyle, you've taken a, a very valiant stab at this and, and put together what I think is just a very cogent uh, and um, clinically accurate classification. So thanks again, guys. Um, Kyle Fargen is an associate editor of the JNIS. Uh, his commentary is published in the February issue of the JNIS and is entitled Idiopathic Intracranial Hypertension is Not Idiopathic, Proposal for a New Nomenclature and Patient Classification. And Mike Levitt's commentary based on Dr. Fargen's work is entitled Another Version of the Truth and is published in the April 2020 issue. Thanks, guys, for your time today. Uh, I'd like to thank our listeners and our readers of the JNIS. I know this is a crazy time. Hopefully, the JNIS provides a bit of a distraction. Stay healthy, guys, uh, and good luck. Mm -hmm.